what was Johnny Knoxville up to in this episode that made you think of Buster Keaton? He uh, set himself on fire. Yeah. Not by accident, on purpose. Head to toe on fire. He said the the being on fire wasn't so bad, but uh, all the fire eating all his oxygen was was the part that <laughs> he, he didn't like. <laughs> so I'm socially liberal, fiscal conservative. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Sunday Presents with me, Gene Buckley. And me, Karen Maloney. The Sunday is a website where you can read about films and TV shows and music and stuff. And uh, you should like read it. But n- you should be li- not why listen to this podcast and then like <laughs> later, you know, if, if you're hungry for more, but in written form, check it out. And... If you're good with just the old audio, I guess. <laughs> this is also our podcast where we take turns showing each other favorite films of ours that the other hasn't seen before. We we are now back to our regularly scheduled programming of Dean making me watch some film you never heard of that he took a notion to watch once. <laughs> this is like the most took a notion to watch film I've done, as in I just saw the the title of the film on a... On a website where movies are available to to watch. And I was like, oh, that title's weird. And I clicked on it and I watched it. And here That's we insane. are. That's insane. That's <laughs> insane. And what is that title of that film that we are going to discuss, Dean? This week we're talking about the 1965 Italian film Fists in the Pocket, which, despite being my favorite film, one of my favorite films for a while now, I've... Uh, I've yet to master the art of consistently pronouncing correctly in English because my instinct is fists in the pockets or fist in the pockets the whole time. <laughs> but you can say it in Italian, no problem. Oh, yeah. Ipunia Tosca. Like, it's <laughs> no, no bother at all. So, yeah, I picked this film because, um, <laughs> honestly, for a similar reason, I picked Speed Racer. I thought I was going too easy on you. Um. <laughs> it's uh the da, 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 the directorial blue de, de, the directorial blue uh, <laughs> a directorial debut of of marco bellocchio who i've not seen anything else by and so that means nothing to me yeah and yeah. i've seen a lot of italian films as you know but primarily either uh neorealism from like the 40s and 50s like Rome Open City or Bicycle Thieves. Dolly, that sounds like a future episode. Or like the jo- the, the Italian genre boom yeah. of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like spaghetti westerns and jallos and, you know, trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I say very lovingly. Absolutely. So this was, is, is neither of those things. Mm. I'll say that. Yeah, it's uh, wedged right in the middle there, temporally, and perhaps thematically. I mean, I thought that, and then I thought about it again, and was like, this came out a year after Fistful of Dollars. <laughs> Which, That's firstly, true. what a time for Italian movies 
with the word fist in the title. (laughs) (laughs) But secondly, that's, yeah, it seems like it's much more of a mid between those two things, but Mm -mm. perhaps not. I don't know. Or maybe, I don't know. I didn't, I, I did not do a lot of research. I will admit that. I'll admit that I didn't either. You ate my homework? I didn't know dogs really did that. Do you want to tell us about the the plot of Fist in the Pocket then? Sure, sure. So Fist in the Pocket is about this family, a mother and her four adult children, three boys and one girl, living in this old Italian villa full of pictures of dead people. And the mother is blind, and all her children, except for the oldest, Augusto, who is basically their carer. Well, no, but he he works and he like drives them around and so forth. Mm. All of her children except him are epileptic. So right off the top, I should say that I watched the restoration from, I think, 2015. Okay. Is that the one you watched? Is that the Criterion one? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there was a big note at the start saying that it was funded by Giorgio Armani and like an explanatory thing about the restoration where it said, the kiss has been put back in at the director's request. <laughs> and like, I, I appreciate they wanted to explain stuff, but I was just thinking about it the entire time. Like, when will the kiss be? Will I know it when I see it? Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh <laughs> So uh, the film starts with this anonymous threatening letter written in cutout newspaper letters received by Augusto's girlfriend, Lucia. And it says, I'm pregnant with Augusto's child, so I'm his real girlfriend. And Augusto looks at it and he's like, my sister Julia wrote this. <laughs> so right off the top, they're, they're kind of a weird family. Mm-hmm. But the main character is their brother, Alessandro, who's sometimes called Ali and sometimes called Sandro. And he decides that <laughs> he's going to kill his whole, fam- his whole family except Augusto so that Augusto won't be burdened with them anymore and can live his own life. And I knew that was the premise going in. And the listeners might, like me, imagine that is motivated by almost a kind of misplaced generosity, Mm. like born from internalized self-hatred. But it's not like that at all. No, (laughs) It's much more like this idea comes to Alessandro and he just becomes fixated on it. And I don't know what your take on it, but for me, it seemed to be almost entirely out of boredom. Yeah, that's def- the boredom will is definitely a substantial part of this film. Yeah, so he orchestrates to drive the family, minus Augusto, to the cemetery for All Souls Day. And he basically says to Augusto beforehand, like, yeah, I'm going to drive us all off a cliff. And Augusto's reaction is just blasé. Like, there's yeah. kind of an ambiguity about whether he, like, wants it to happen or thinks it's like a sick joke or how much even kind of I don't know but at first Julia wasn't going to go but Augusto convinces her and when they leave Augusto reads this note Alessandro left basically saying bye enjoy us being dead I'd like to be (laughs) cremated please Yeah, yeah and there's this moment where I thought oh there's going to be you know like a chase where Augusto tries to get there before Alessandro comes over the cliff. But instead, he uh, <laughs> seems to think it's a perfect time to pressure Lucia for sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
Alessandro doesn't go through with it. He chickens out, basically. And when they come back all safe, Augusto gives out to him. And Julia is like, why did you make me go then? And uh, this combined with Alessandro driving the car all sexy and dangerous (laughs) uh, causes her affections to start to transfer from Augusto to Alessandro. And they kind of become this little team. And Alessandro (laughs) decides he wants to start some sort of chinchilla business. But when Augusto won't give him the startup money and basically says, I would if our mother was dead, (laughs) he uh, kills their mother. He pushes her off a cliff, which is pretty easy since she's blind and trusts her son for some reason. And there's this great funeral sequence, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Mm. And then Julie and Alessandra end up like throwing away all their mother's stuff, like flinging furniture out the window and stuff. Lighting it on fire. Yeah. And and like Alessandra's going around in his mother's fur coat. It's insane. And, <laughs> and uh, just to be clear for anyone who thought that a film opens with a I'm his real girlfriend letter from your boyfriend's sister would, you know, not there. There are like mad incest vibes off this. It's like it's it's like that 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 Christmas ad for Folgers coffee sort of level. I brought you something from far away. <laughs> really? Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? You're my present this year. The best part of waking up is folders in your cup. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Augusto is going to move out to marry Lucia and live with her in town. And Alessandro is like, where did you get the money for that? And he's like, uh, from mom dying. And Alessandro is like, what about the money you promised me? And Augusto is like, I just assumed you forgot about that. I mean, it was money for a chinchilla business. Well, on one hand, Alessandro obviously resents this. But on the other hand, he he doesn't really care about the chinchillas thing anymore at all. So, you know. Ball. No, they have this conversation after out. he has pretty much already killed the deal with, with the guy at the funeral. So, naturally, Alessandro then kills his epileptic brother. <laughs> he gives him an overdose of medication when he's putting him in the bath, and he dies. Alessandro goes back upstairs to fuck his sister. I mean, w- we don't see them fuck, but this is where the uh, famously restored kiss occurs. Mm. and and i saw it and i was like that's the one (laughs) that's it (laughs) then julia finds her brother dead and is really upset (laughs) and she obviously realizes alessandra did it and she's like so appalled she falls down a flight of stairs then we cut to alessandro like hassling a doctor for julia's chances of survival or paralysis or just like what is his prognosis and the doctor is an absurdly closed book he's like it wouldn't help me to tell you it's insane (laughs) anyway (laughs) Alessandro goes in to see her and briefly puts a pillow over her face, but then he pulls back and leaves, and she's still alive, so he he didn't kill her. And she tells Augusto that Alessandro killed her mother and brother, and he's like, I'll call the cops. And she's like, there's no evidence, and I'm not going to rat him out, so good luck with that. (laughs) And he's like, worried about himself. And Lucia, he's worried about like himself and Lucia, and Julia's like, I'm the one that's in danger. Yeah, yeah. And Alessandro goes back in to see her and he's like, 
I thought you'd be happy. Our brother is dead. And she's like, I'm not happy because you don't love me. And he's like, but I do love you. Then he goes out and has what I guess is a seizure, but it doesn't look like one. And like earlier in the film, his brother had a seizure that looked like a seizure. So that's interesting is all in terms of what Alessandro's deal is. Yeah. But he's crying out for Julia to help him and she doesn't freeze frame of him lying on the ground, seemingly not breathing, cut to black. And that's fist in the pocket. The best part of waking up is folders in your cup. Remember when you were worried bringing Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 on as two of your favorite films would make people think you were a real sicko? <laughs> anyway, yeah. here's fists in the pocket. <laughs> Yeah, you. The difference is that you are a real sicko, though. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, listeners at home can't see all the human hair lining the the ceiling of my room. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that's what that was. <laughs> I thought you just had a ceiling carpet. It's weird that ceiling carpets do exist. Yeah, well, you know, it's important to make your home feel like a padded cell as much as possible. <laughs> So, Dean, do you want to tell me why you want me to watch Fist in the Pocket? Sure. I mean, genuinely, part of it is just I don't, I've never, uh, like, not just I don't know anyone, but, like, even just, like, looking around the internet, trying to find writing about this film, trying to figure out how other people feel about it, (laughs) has not been an easy quest. So this seemed like (laughs) a good way to trick you into helping me out. (laughs) But but mostly I just think it's it's a really 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 great film that that has had like so little attention paid to it or at least uh, so little the attention paid to it is recorded and available to find on the internet. <laughs> um, can I ask what genre do you think Fist in the Pocket is? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, oh. <laughs> I didn't think that would be that hard. Black comedy? Okay. Interesting. What about um, you? Yeah, same. From what I read, there seems to be this like largely unacknowledged schism on this movie, which is on one side, people who think it's like a bleak, intense, disturbing drama. Mm. Like the New York Times said, it is sealed and stifling, gray and extremely powerful, about as attractive as someone coughing wretchedly beside you on the subway and as insistent. That's a positive review, by the way. (laughs) Um, And on the other people who think it's a black comedy. And I mean, I stand on the same side in all such debates. but, (laughs) But I find it very interesting in terms of neither side of the schism seems to be aware of the other. Okay. Like the black comedy side doesn't talk like they're making a counter case. Yeah. And the drama side talk like there's no possibility in the world that anyone could find any of this funny. Yeah. But there's not any any humor in it. So it's just really <laughs> weird. Yeah, it's not like obviously the our our case study is always Gone Girl mm. where uh not only is there a tension between people's the two camps regarding interpretation of that film as a as a straight drama or as a black comedy but um straight drama people like won that debate in in the popular consciousness i think 
Yeah, which is like when I talk about Gone Girl being a comedy, I I'm very aware that I'm like trying to convince people of something they don't already know or believe. Yeah, it it sounds like the the, the fist in the pocket never generated enough discourse for the people to run into <laughs> each other, which is tragic. Because whatever else this film film is, it's definitely something to fucking talk about. <laughs> I, um, I I, I want to run some some quick fire comparisons by you. Okay, can All I right. can I do one first? Yeah, Clockwork Orange. So you've ruined one of mine now because okay, <laughs> my five quick fire comparisons are just to protagonists of stories. So yeah, Alex DeLarge, a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Obviously, you're you're saying, yeah, yeah. There's something there. Thumb thumbs up to that one. Norman Bates. We all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? Yeah, he's he's not sweet like Norman. Yeah, Hamlet. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody. Will be nothing worth. <laughs> what? What if Hamlet did not have a problem with, like, well, like, a, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> Joker, as portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> yes. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. And finally, Oedipus the King. No. Okay. I I do think there's. He's kind would... of he do, he doesn't have like a like a Oedipus complex. He's got like almost like a uh, something else. Yeah, I I was thinking. I, of I, one of one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think Alessandra's deal is? Yeah. Um. The reason I was thinking of Oedipus was more. I, I kept thinking of the phrase <laughs> horizontal Oedipus complex. He wants to fuck his sister and kill his brother. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There once lived a man named Oedipus Rex. You may have heard about his odd complex. His name appears in Freud's index because he loved his mother. Yeah. The big question about what Alessandro's deal is is. <laughs> is is such a fascinating one and do you think he's epileptic that's the listener might not understand why that's a why that's even a question but um early on when he's he's trying to convince augusta to let him uh, do the driver's test Mm -hmm. he says he hasn't had a fit in over a year and then augusta goes to say oh you only had one recently yeah but (laughs) And he's like, no, I was faking it. I just didn't want to take Leone, the younger brother, into town. <laughs> and throughout the film, there are only two moments where Alessandro has watched. Because if, if, you, if you never saw Leone having the seizure early in the film, you might just think, ah, oh, this is just an accurate portrayal of, yeah. of a seizure. Exactly, yeah. But both times Alessandro has a quote-unquote seizure... The the moments they occur are pretty interesting and seem more like maybe there's some sort of emotional or even performative reasons for him to for yeah. him to have these episodes. Like in, when he has the, well, we'll just say seizure for like 
convenience sake. Yeah. The the seizure he has at the end of the film, like he's kind of rolling around. He's not shaking and he's and and he wants Julia to put something in his mouth. Um, which I feel like perhaps has also a non-epileptic reason (laughs) for that desire. And yeah, and it's almost like that he wants to be taken care of or wants a reason to be seen as helpless and vulnerable without actually... Mm. And I don't even know how much control he necessarily has over it, like in terms of it being performative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whether it's... I don't know. It's, anyway, it's interesting, though. It's definitely interesting. Uh, yeah, so someone once used this phrase, and it always stuck with me, that some people are very good at generating attention around themselves. And that's not always as a deliberate ploy, but but can be like a learned a learned behavior or habit. And mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say Alessandro's attention-seeking. That's a weird, extraordinary, simplistic gloss <laughs> on his character. But I do think it's interesting, like, not just... Because the two times that he has the seizures, the first one is at um at his mother's funeral, just after he confesses to Julia that he killed he killed their mother, mm-hmm. and it's uh, unclear how seriously Julia takes this information. It's actually interesting how much time in this film Alessandro spends confessing to his to to his plans in advance and afterwards, and nobody <laughs> caring. Uh, <laughs> But but then the second time is after Julia um, rejects him after he killed Leone and also doesn't doesn't love her. <laughs> but I do love you. As and it's interesting that as well as all the ways they're not like seizures that these seizures happen during moments of either what could be extreme repressed guilt on Alessandro's part for what he's done or the um, appearance or performance of extreme guilt. Mm-hmm. in a way that almost forces in both cases like julia does take care of him at the funeral and he's trying to make julia take care of him at the end mm-hmm. and 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 it's interesting that he that he is constantly trying to get julia to take care of him because one of the earlier moments of um with his mother he's he's talking about being so lonely and sad just after um deliberately upsetting her by making up fake news stories that he's <laughs> reading her from the newspaper just to like upset her one of which is in a moment of foreshadowing um boy drowns <laughs> mother after uh, being forced she to tries take to bath. make him take a bath yeah um, <laughs> perfect she's like isn't there any good news <laughs> <laughs> and she he's like resting his head on her lap and talking about how sad and lonely he is and she's like oh my poor child you want some candy and he just like runs off because he obviously hates being infantilized but also he likes being taken care of yeah which i think you know he wants his sister to be his mother wife like <laughs> <laughs> on that what do you think julia's deal is <laughs> Oh God, Julia! So we don't see Julia have a seizure at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we see her fall down some stairs. That's it, right? <laughs> That's the only. Yeah, but she falls down because she's like staggering back. Yeah, no? she just found. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because uh, she just uh, found Leone's body and 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 realized that because because it's not like Ali does like a hugely extensive job of covering up his murders he like 
kills Leone and then just goes back and fucks. <laughs> <laughs> and fucks Julia immediately afterwards. So when she finds Leone dead, she's really like, understands what has just occurred. Sandro! Sandro! You said this thing about boredom earlier, mm-hmm. and I do think that a really core aspect motivating the behavior of pretty much everyone in this film, except Augusto and um, Lucia, because they have lives outside the <laughs> villa, is boredom. They're especially Alessandro and Julia are really fidgety. They're always moving around. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes they'll just be, especially Alessandro, he's, he'll just be walking around and just start doing like jumps and stuff. And he's always toying with people even before he becomes a serial killer. There's a thing <laughs> with his mom and the fake news. And Are he, you serial killer if you kill two people? Well, he was uh, an aspiring serial killer. Yeah. At the very least, an aspiring family annihilator. Yeah. Uh, of the rare non, uh, non-dad husband variety. Yeah. <laughs> And you get the same thing with, with Julia because you wonder, like, is she really in sick, incestuous love with Augusto or does she just, like, fucking with him and yeah. with his girlfriend and does it just entertain her? And again, this kind of idea of generating attention around herself, like, making people pay attention to her. Not in the sense of, like, she's she's so vainglorious or anything, but just because just to have something happening around her. <laughs> yeah. Is definitely a huge part. I feel like if I think Julia is probably more motivated by boredom, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of the dynamic of how she can at one at, at the same time be kind of the Bonnie to to Ali's Clyde in a lot of the schemes and goings on, but also mm-hmm. be so constantly um, shocked by how far he takes things <laughs> because for her it is all just a game, and some of the games are are dark and fucked up and reveal unpleasant things about her character like i love love the moment when they get back from when they get back from when he didn't drive them off the cliff on on the way to the the cemetery and she says you didn't do it but to think you could even conceive of it and he goes julia listen and and she just goes bravo (laughs) i i think what's really interesting with their relationship is like i think julia really is just happy with the two of them just running rampant around the villa as long as they're together and yeah. then i like ali has this like 500 million other things going on i'm not sure <laughs> what he what he well because sometimes it seems pretty clear what he wants but then he very much does not this is one of the reasons i compare him to hamlet is because he keeps saying what he wants <laughs> and how he's gonna get it and then it, it takes him like an hour just to kill his mom and she's an old blind lady like <laughs> well the in terms of that like headline premise of like he wants to kill his family so Augusto isn't burdened by them anymore but like he hates Augusto mm-hmm. and especially after his mom dies and him and Julia become like that like really close knit team it feels like like he, like his primary motivation is fucking with Augusto and then he wants mm. to like punish him and stuff but yeah. he continues with his original plan Mm-hmm. And like it's... he fucks with Augusto like one of the reasons he kills Leone is just to create problems for Augusto basically yeah yeah I don't know 
It's weird. He's a weird guy. He 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 wants to be Alice or Augusto. Um, yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. From as early as I think it's the first. So in the first few minutes, you get a load of just scenes, kind of scenes of the characters before they sit down for dinner, and it does this really economic job of establishing loads of tensions and dynamics and stuff <laughs> in the first few minutes, so that there's already <laughs> enough there to to make dinner tense and complicated. <laughs> Well, one of the interesting things about how the film starts is that it, it initially seems like Augusto, like you're following Augusto, like he's the main character. Yeah. And then it shifts to Alessandro. Yeah. Because Augusto is much more like a main character, like in a traditional sense, except he's yeah. not because he's actually a total shitheel. But you don't know that at the beginning. Yeah. And there's a bit at the, like just after dinner when... um. Augusto calls Julia into his like study to give out to her about about the letter, and yeah. she thinks he, it's because she told him that a, uh, a Alessandro left a, a love poem to her on her locker. <laughs> but when they leave the room, Ali sits down in Augusto's chair at the head of the table and just like looks at Leone and his mom, like, yeah, is yeah. that the moment? <laughs> You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. He's constantly like, saying he... he's doing things for Alessandro's benefit, but it for seems Augusto's like, benefit. or yeah, he's constantly saying he's constantly saying he's doing things for Augusto's benefit, but also he clearly wants to replace Augusto. What? It would be a much simpler plan to just kill Augusto. Yeah, and fuck yeah. Julia, and yeah. live happily ever after. You can All drive right. them around. You don't need him. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> You're not, not a good idea. You're not advocating killing your brother and fucking your sister. No matter who you are, whatever you do, please don't try this at home. Alessandro is one of those, what they call in the movie business, a bad guy. Mm. Like in, you know, Goodfellas or something. <laughs> you told me that some people think this is pro-eugenics. And I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, as the Sunday presents residents, you know, res resident disabled, <laughs> if you could talk about that briefly. Yeah. So, um, I, to be clear, don't think it's pro eugenics either, no, but I, I want to think about that kind of idea briefly. I think, uh, on some levels, this is a basic portrayal is not endorsement situation. Like, all, all, all the characters in a family of, of, of 60, 40 horrible people be, having bad attitudes about disability and stuff does not a, a eugenicist propaganda film make. <laughs> but more than that, I actually think that like the way it engages with ideas of eugenics and disability is part of what I love it so much. Part of it is just um, that uh, the thing we talk about in terms of like music, usually pop punk or Eminem and stuff of like, creating like a uh, artistic and emotional space for the darkest thoughts that rattle around yeah. the brains of mankind to be expressed in a form that is not actually incitement to any yeah. kind of yeah. violence. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's betrayal of, of Alessandro's attitude towards himself and his disabled family. It's like, yeah, you've got a definite order to how you're going to kill those people, eh, Alessandro? You've got a definite, not just, you're not just like all disabled people need to go so the able body can rise up. You're like, okay, first we get rid of the old woman. She's the most dependent and least useful. Then we get rid of, of, of the most epileptic brother. 
the most the one who's definitely like actually disabled <laughs> which seems like a <laughs> weird clarification to have to make in this film but there you go. and you know honestly at that point like if the film didn't end he probably was gonna kill Augusto next he was gonna suddenly flip on his original plan and, and pursue something different it's not it's not like about this but like even within the ostracized group of th- these disabled and I don't say this uh, pejoratively, just descriptively. These very dependent people who need a lot of assistance from other people and support from other people to be able to live a comfortable life. Brackets, aren't we all dependent? Blah, 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 blah. Don't at us on Twitter. Yeah, even even within that group, there is like a eugenicist almost like hierarchy of of like who deserves to be taken care of who deserves to be alive at all and disabled people are not immune to eugenicist ways of thinking they are not Uh, historically not (laughs) helen keller was a eugenicist exactly exactly which and in every other respect she was so cool yeah she's there's always one thing in there yeah no the um because for me part of what fist in the pocket is if not like saying or because it doesn't have it's not kind of film with a point it ends on a fade to black after after someone has either a seizure or a fit of guilt (laughs) it just fades to black while he's lying on the floor unclear whether he's conscious or alive so i think actually the the most useful way to think about this might be to think about the the italian villa as a like southern european catholic parallel to the big house in protestant uh or not necessarily protestant but protestant dominated culture so in terms of like mm. victorian gothic um is the the shortest line here from one to the other that like the appearance of of rotting old mansions and stuff in fiction and especially as a horror device is very much connected with the actual material decay of those buildings in real life or the fear of that because of like the fall of the old Protestant moneyed class in British imperial and and like the colonies and and spin-offs or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> and there's a similar thing about like the villa and even this like I don't think there's anything suggesting they're like aristocratic, but they're certainly like old landed gentry of some kind who have, who have fallen onto Tartan. Yeah, they they strike me as like if you go way way back, they were aristocrats. And they yeah. have not been in quite some time. Yeah. So I think like you can get bogged down on on, on thinking about like the the disability themes and the eugenicist themes in in terms of like the characters' attitudes. And I think I think it's useful to think about it. The film is being about the transition that it took place during to from the old Europe that wasn't, you know, at its peak just before World War Two, but was still there after before World War Two, the last remnants of the kind of hereditary aristocratic through like blood and title and 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 land money delete of the pre-war era and then into the more business bourgeois uh financialized elite of the of the post-war world and in the in, in a broader sense between the world of tradition the world of family the world of connection to the land to the to the world of like individualism hedonism and self-expression because 
not like anyone in this anyone in this film is an ideologue or anything, but basically Augusto uh, wants what about that guy at the party who keeps talking about Hobbes? Yeah, but is is he does he have an ideology or does he just have a series of sentences he says at women until they either have sex with him or leave? <laughs> his his ideology is mansplaining. Yeah, literally. She the says one what about women? Example. And he's like Women are irrelevant to philosophy. <laughs> You know, Augusto, he is uh, reluctantly and resentfully um, attending to his obligations to his family, but he's also constantly berating and belittling them and um, making clear, you know, that thing that people do where they're like, any resentment of, of your situation is ingratitude toward them. And like when he when he he says to Alessandro that like he should have ambitions like yes and he says you could have ambitions to have nice clothes and some pocket money it wouldn't be much but it'd be something and it's like why is that your go-to example of an ambition yeah (laughs) have nice clothes he's a good little consumer augusto he wants to live in town with in his apartment with his nice pretty fiance and go to parties with the other sophisticated attractive young people and then get drunk and shoot rats in a garbage dump after <laughs> i was literally thinking about like the dynamic of of the people of the family members living in the villa as being like rats in a cage and then that scene just came up on like, <laughs> yep that's that's it Do you want to talk about uh, Luke Castell or Paola Pitagora at all, our leads? Uh, Luke Castell is, like, amazing in it. Mm. He he plays Alessandro, and, like, I mean, we said before A Clockwork Orange, but, like, <laughs> comparing someone's performance to Malcolm McDowell in A Clockwork Orange is possibly the highest compliment that yeah. I that I can bestow yeah. and especially to to a performance like this I feel like that's like the apex you know that everyone's trying to reach um yeah of like the young the, um, disconnected male psychopath basically yeah like there's this but it's not just that he's how to describe it like he's this mix of like amoral and also really charismatic like he's he's really captivating to watch yeah. in a way that makes you feel complicit. Yeah, yeah. And like, like in all the arguments between him and Augusto, you're like Team Augusto. I mean, you're like <laughs> Team Alessandro. You're not Team Augusto. You're like fuck Augusto. I can't wait till he kills Augusto. Yeah, because <laughs> he's a little rude. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I mean. Obviously, that's what the film is like playing with is like making you engage with these taboos on a very uncomfortable level and kind mm. of then reflexively be like, oh, fuck, what what am I doing? And that's so much of that is his performance. I, he's he's brilliant. That was my favorite thing about the movie. I, I it would be so especially like this is the mid 60s. Mm. And I feel like there weren't that many performances like that in films i've seen from like before that you know i can Mm, think of a mm. lot after like like malcolm mcdowell in 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 a clockwork orange and in if and just like 
like every film in the 90s or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. But I feel like that was a very unusual style in this time period mm. Mm. because it's very much not, it's obviously not sort of classic Hollywood acting, but it's also not the sort of like Brando style method acting. No. It's this really heightened uh and i'm not at all crediting the invention of like heightened performances to luca style uh <laughs> the japanese and their long theatrical traditions would have something to say about that yeah. but it is i would say it's one of the earliest performance like this i've seen in a movie mm. one hour after recording this episode i forgot about strangers on a train and rope I, he's he's just brilliant. He's he's. I just like I watched the film and I was like, I want to see more of that guy. Yeah, that was my main takeaway from it. Yeah, this was actually apart from like a, a bit part in a Visconti film, uh, Lucas Dell's first film. That's insane. And yeah. on, and on the other hand, of course. Yeah, yeah. He hadn't learned any of the he, like he hadn't learned how to how to do it properly yet. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. He could like explode the. That's really good. Kira. Dean. Are you glad you watched Fists in the Pocket? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> no, it's good. I liked it. I liked how how out there it was willing to go in terms of the story. Like, I am a well-known aficionado of, of, like, shock humor and so forth and, and like, taboo-breaking for the sake of taboo-breaking. And that's, like... And, okay, maybe it's taboo-breaking in, in like, uh, service of some allegory I don't understand. <laughs> but to me, I was just, like, you know, I don't know. I, I like, like, uh, Titan, so... I'm a weirdo. Yeah, I haven't seen Titan yet, but I'm going going to like it based on she fucks a car, and yeah. that's like not the weirdest thing that happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh... <laughs> I don't know anything about any allegory. Now and then, when I was when I've researched Fist in the Pocket in the past, I've seen this common phrase: "It foresaw the Italian student protests of the late '60s," and I was like, "Not gonna look into that." Did it? Did it film... do that? Films don't foresee things. They just sometimes express similar feelings about reality to feelings about reality expressed in reality. It's not that except complicated. For, except for Bob Roberts, which foresaw the Trump presidency. I, I haven't seen Bob Roberts yet, but I'll take <laughs> your word for it. I'll defer to your judgment on this. I recommend Bob Roberts, directed by and starring Tim Robbins to all the listeners. And if you like movies with like incest vibes i recommend Titan, <laughs> even though it's not t i won't get into okay. it okay. Um, <laughs> well, and, don't give too uh, much away for me if nothing else yeah it was just it was just really good i wasn't like in love with it mm. but i was like this is good good job to all involved so what are we watching next week here what are you what are you putting me through next week a month from now uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, weeks are different we changed weeks get over it <laughs> we are watching two films again 
but if anyone is has a a dose of world weariness from the <laughs> Justice League special, I'm happy to say that both films are about an hour long, so it's not really like two films. And those are James Whale's Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm. You've read the book, right? Frankenstein is my favorite book. I've all, it is an excellent book. The films are very different, <laughs> but also excellent. Yeah, I you you don't you know well that I'm not all I'm not a bad fealty to the source material <laughs> adaptations. So to the extent I'll be thinking about the book at all, but I'll just be thinking about it. I'm curious to see how this riffs on those ideas, iterates on those ideas. Aside from anything else, the uh, the book of Frankenstein is basically unadaptable as it is. Yes, yes. Which like, is why, of course, adapting it is is one of my highest dreams. Because actually <laughs> successfully adapting Frankenstein to screen would be an incredible feat. Like Frankenstein, the book has like like seven different framing devices just nestled inside each other. <laughs> yeah, and literally, and, and and it's it's very much like the Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film, where people are reading each other, reading about reading like. <laughs> Christian Bale is reading the journal of Hugh Jackman who's reading the journal of Christian Bale you know like it's yeah, yeah it's very like yeah. that with Frankenstein where people are inside their own stories and then reading stories <laughs> about themselves from the perspective of yeah <laughs> um, have you uh what kind of Frankenstein media are you familiar with other than the book have you seen young Frankenstein I've seen young Frankenstein and I've seen you have I have okay. seen young Frankenstein interesting I've seen the appalling uh, mid-2000s Hugh Jackman film Van Helsing, which features <laughs> essentially the first attempt at the universal dark u- universe, but all in one film, like Dracula. The first attempt at the universal dark universe was in like the 30s, but never Yeah, mind. yeah, but uh, as a dumb action thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, something I would say about the fact that you have seen Young Frankenstein is that Young Frankenstein is an extremely faithful adaptation of the James Whale Frankenstein. That is fascinating to hear. But with jokes, obviously. Yeah. I I have seen one James Whale, Whale film, which is The Invisible Man with Claude Rains, ah. which is... And you loved that. I loved it so much. You don't James- see his face until the last shot. <laughs> And then the biggest twist of the film, young Claude Rains was crazy pretty. Like, so... <laughs> he's such, like, this angelically beautiful man just at the end. You caught me off guard more than anything else in the film. James Whale, cool guy. Uh, he he basically, like, invented the horror film in terms of the sound era, I would say. Yeah, and certainly as the, like... Um... They're certainly the Universal Monsters type deal of horror yeah i would say he invented the the kind of filmic horror that that would become the genre of horror rather than just like like the genre of horror native to film if you get me rather than like yeah. horror that's adapting or building on pre pre-film horror like yeah. if you, the there, there were lo- there was loads of horror films before to be clear i'm not yeah insane yeah. but james well definitely invented something and we'll talk about what that is yeah. Next week, a month from now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Until next time, I'm Dean Buckley. I'm Kira Maloney. The song was Boosh Dog by Alexander Nakarada. And this was The Sunday Presents. And happy birthday to Sydney Poitier.